Boy, do I have a great conversation for you today, listeners. I had the pleasure of talking to and interviewing Brittany McBean. Brittany is a copywriter and marketing strategist helping online educators and creatives stand out with crystal clear messaging and a laser focused strategy, writing the words that get you seen by the right people so you can make a maximum impact and serve the people who need you the most. She graduated with a degree in theater. As an actor, she came to appreciate the immense value and deep connection of storytelling, as well as the difficult work of self-promotion. Trading the life of an actor for a more rooted yet still flexible job, she began her own business in social media marketing. After five years of experience and success in an oversaturated market, Brittany has begun to work with other brands and businesses to help them stand out in a sea of noise. She lives in Richmond, Virginia with her husband and baby girl and can usually be found throwing family dance parties in the living room or watching The Office for the bajillionth time. You guys, we had such a great conversation um, all about messaging and really understanding what voice is and how to connect with your ideal audience using storytelling and messaging. And then we dove deep into Brittany's life experience with infertility and a transracial adoption. Her two-year-old daughter is black and beautiful and fun and full of energy, but Brittany really dove into the importance of all of the ethics of adoption and understanding what it means to have a transracial adoption and how she and her husband are working very hard to ensure that their daughter grows up knowing that... Um, she is different than her parents, but that doesn't mean she's less than her parents who are a different color. And it's just a beautiful conversation and I can't wait to share it with you. I think you're going to be really enlightened. And those of you who have had experiences with infertility and or adoption are going to really find this interesting. And um, those who are considering adoption are going to find it very, very valuable. So thanks for tuning in today and enjoy the episode. Hello friends, welcome to the Second Phase Podcast. I'm Robin Graham, your host, and a brand marketing strategist and photographer passionate about helping women connect and grow their audience and get more clients. I am so excited you are here with me today to chat all about branding, personal development, and life overall in this second phase. What is the second phase? The second phase for me was a change in careers and learning how to navigate a new world and build the business from the ground up when I was actually terrified to put myself out into the world as something new. For some, the second phase is a significant lifestyle change, a traumatic loss, a move, an illness. It could be any number of things. No matter the definition of your second phase, we are here together to learn about creating a brand that stands out and makes an impact and grow as our authentic selves and follow our callings, our passions, our visions, and our values. Now grab your cup of coffee or the dog's leash and let's dive into a new episode. Brittany McBean, welcome to the Second Phase Podcast. Hey Robin, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. 
So we have been chatting a little bit offline before we're starting the interview, and I've learned a lot about you through your questionnaire as well as just our little short conversation, um, but I would love for you to tell the listeners a little bit about you and um, who you are. Awesome. Um, yeah. So like you said, my name is Brittany McBean. I am a conversion copywriter and online marketing strategist for online educators and course creators and coaches, which is just fancy schmancy speak for I help people write words that sound like them and sell their stuff. Um, I am a work at home mom. I have a two year old little girl. She is the happiest, most energetic, most brave child who tries to find new ways to die every day. And so I'm growing gray hairs by the minute. Um, and as of today, which is March 30th, we are sheltering in place and it is, um, because of COVID and it is, uh, so much fun, <laughs> so much fun. Um, so yeah, I live in Richmond, Virginia. It's uh, my husband, myself and our little girl and our puppy. And, um, I, work out of my home with her and it is the best and the craziest and the hardest thing I've ever done. And I wouldn't change it for a second. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. So you are, um, I guess in technicality, a mompreneur, the mm -hmm. seems to be the hot phrase of the day. Yeah. Um, just on social put media. It in front of preneur and, and somebody else will say it. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. yeah. So funny. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about your first phase. I think it's fascinating. Um, so tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, when I was in middle school and high school, I was a bit of an outsider. And um, I wasn't really a cool kid that I wanted to be and I tried really hard to be. But I also really loved singing and I really loved dancing and I was mediocre at both. <laughs> so I, um, I started really focusing on that. And um, in high school, I started doing a high school theater and chorus and all state chorus and all of those things that like the super nerdy chorus kids do in high school. And then I started um, auditioning around my state. So I grew up in Maryland and um, DC and Baltimore have some really great either professional or community theaters. And so I started um, just auditioning in different places and uh, basically just caught the theater bug. And I think that by the time I graduated, high school between like freshman and senior year, I'd been in like 15 shows or something, just whatever. Um, and I loved it and I really loved um, dancing and I had choreographed and been dance captain. And so when it came time to um, go to college, I was like, well, do I want security? It just, it just honestly never occurred to me to do anything that people would consider like a real job. I just, I wanted to act and, and security wasn't, um, and a paycheck were not even on my radar. So I went to school for musical theater and I majored in musical theater, minored in dance at Coastal Carolina University. And then when I graduated, I was a professional actor for about three or four years, um, which really looked like going to a lot of different auditions at different parts of the country, everywhere from like New York to some big um, conferences and just getting contracts wherever somebody would hire you. So I worked really all up and down the East Coast and even did some touring theater um, where I toured around the country. And um, so yes, I was a professional actor. I just wanted to share all of that so it didn't sound super fancy or like a, uh, a shiny life because it wasn't, but it was a lot of fun um, and I loved it. And then 
when I moved to Richmond, I moved here for a boy that I very quickly dumped and decided <laughs> I loved Richmond. <laughs> and I stayed here and I got a job with um, the biggest theater in town. I was really, really lucky to get an admin job with them, working full time in the office and running their education department. Um, and so I did that for a while. And then I kind of started feeling really burnt out and I had met my husband and the fire just seemed to die a little bit and I just needed a change. I'm a very antsy person. So um, I moved to nannying and then nannying was not very um, mentally challenging or creative for me, but I did love it. So while I was nannying, I started a network marketing business like everybody else in the world who wants a side hustle and uh, turned that into a full hustle and did that for five years and then um, transferred into what I do now. So that's, that's the story. <laughs> so I, I think it's fascinating that you started with acting and then got into marketing because I think there is a little bit of similarity in crossover because when you're acting, you're really um, almost selling a character, right? Yeah. And it's really cool. It took me a little while to connect the dots, but in the, in, you know, theater and in acting and, and when you're being trained, like you're taught to, to transform and to really find, um, to read between the lines, literally, like what is not on the page? Who is this person? What, what, um, how complex and four dimensional is their life outside of just their lines and how are they different than you? And, and what are their gestures? How do they carry their body? Like you were taught to envision this other person with a totally different life and really step into their voice and own their voice. And then theater is storytelling. I mean, that is what we do is we tell stories and we tell them in a way that, um, that affects the audience and that um, people can connect with and that makes you think and feel and hope and cry and laugh and all of this stuff. So this, this training of uh, storytelling and discovering voice and discovering personality and owning it and conveying it is, is what I do as a copywriter. I just do it now through my keyboard and not my body on a stage. Mm -hmm. I love that connection and messaging is so important for marketing, for branding. And, you know, I, as a personal branding expert, storytelling is huge for me. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what you're doing with your copywriting, but you didn't start from being a network marketer to going straight into copywriting. There was, you did a little bit of other things stuff, right? You did the social media management and then mm -hmm. realized what your gifts were. So talk, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's interesting how you, you have all of these skill skills that have just been interwoven with your journey, but what it came down to is it was just that a journey to find where you could use the skills that, that you had that were the most meaningful. Yeah. And, and I'm sure like most of us and most of your listeners, a very nonlinear journey, you know, how many of us, yes, there are people that go to school, get their degree, get hired right out of school in their field. And then that's their career. But most of them are not entrepreneurs. We're a little bit antsier and we're really creative and we're really, um, uh, bossy in particular. And, um, and that's me, you know, I, I wasn't a great employee. Like I always, I didn't think I was smarter than my bosses, but I always thought 
I could probably do this a little bit better. And if you just let me do this on my own, I could come up with something. And, um, you know, I just, I've always had an itch for creativity and passion. And I have a really hard time doing stuff that I'm not passionate about. Like I'm not super money motivated much to my husband's chagrin, but, but like I want to, I love making money and I love helping people make money. But what I care about is um, being creative and loving what I'm doing. Like that's what lights me up. And so mm-hmm. it was that through line of, of like where do I find the most joy? Whether it was writing curriculum for a theater summer camp where I got to like, pick out the play and write the curriculum and pick the teachers and, and all of that, or whether it was I'm um, working with kids and finding really fun, creative activities or social media management and finding all of the ways, like seeing the pattern, seeing what nobody else saw and connecting the dots with the messaging and what made them so unique and so different. And, um, I love being that person who really gets to be somebody else's mirror, like gets to hold up the mirror and say, this is who you are. This is how other people see you. This is what people love about you that you might not think is special, but it makes you super special. So this is the story that we're going to tell. Um, I've just always loved being that person. And I didn't even know copywriting was a thing. I just, I didn't understand the difference between social media marketing and messaging and copywriting. And then when I found like conversion copywriting and like studying somebody else's audience to, to understand like in a very deep level, what they need to hear and then saying it to them through my client's voice. I was, it was like a drug. I mean, it is a drug. I'm like, this is, it's a new challenge. Every launch, every business. I mean, it's, it makes me so happy and it, it's different every single day, which, um, so yeah, I think the very long answer to your question was, finding that through line and like not settling, but also being realistic and knowing, um, what I could do and then continuing to just evolve and, um, find, find the hole in the market that I could serve with my unique skill set. I love that. And you said so many things in that stretch of, of, of talking, but The one thing that I think is really important to emphasize is what you said about finding that through line. So you basically took all of your skills and expertise and you found where you could apply them the best to serve other people. Yeah. And one thing that is really, really important to remember is that what is easy for us and what we love and what lights us up and like our superpower feels like one, it feels like we shouldn't get the credit for it. And two, it feels like we shouldn't necessarily highlight it because it's not that big of a deal. And what we don't know is that what is easy to us and like our superpower is someone else's kryptonite. And it is so hard for them and they would pay you hand over foot to help them with it. And so it took me a little while to realize like, oh, the things that I love helping people with that are so easy to me the marketing strategy, the how we're going to do this to get this outcome and what people need to hear and the messaging and, and connecting the dots. Like I can, I can see that right when I look at someone's business or when I dig into it and other people can't, and it feels so obvious to me. Um, it doesn't mean that I'm like smarter or better than anyone else. It means that that is my superpower. And my job is to hone that and get as much training, as much education, as much experience in doing that 
and then charge my worth. And it is so hard for us to remember that the things that are so easy to us are so valuable to other people. So like you have to know your superpower and then you have to like, like hedge all your bets. (laughs) Just, just go all in with your superpower. Yeah. And I think, you know, you, you said it several times and it's that ability to tell a story, but it's, but before you can even tell the story, you have a gift where you can identify you have a unique gift that allows you to identify the unique gifts of your clients so that they can provide or you can help them provide the messaging that they need to be able to connect with their audience. Mm-hmm. And that connection is key. Just like you were connecting from the stage to your audience. Now mm-hmm. you're connecting through words, your, uh, your client with their ideal client, which that messaging then converts to sell, sales. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. So tell us, um, I love your secret sauce and I, I just think it's the, a really, really cute. It's almost, it's kind of a cross between a, a a mission statement and, um, and just like a pleasantry. So tell us, say your secret sauce for us, would you? Yeah. So I'll share with you what's on my website and then like what's behind it. So I like to say that the, the secret sauce is a little word science plus a dash of your personality, plus a, plus a big old heap of the messages your dream client is dying to hear. And that all equals your copy sweet spot. So that, that is really, um, that's my unique value proposition, but I wanted to say it in a way that was fun to read and a little bit clever. But, um, one thing that I do differently than, um, a lot of copywriters is I spend three fourths of my time on a project in research mode and only a fourth of the time writing because I spend a ton of time studying your market, your audience, going to where they talk, the Facebook groups, the blog posts, the YouTube videos they comment on, and just listening, just listening to what they're asking for, what words they're using, what they're afraid of, what they want, their hopes, their dreams, all of this stuff. And that's, that's kind of ground zero. That's step one is like, what do they need to hear in order to understand what it is that you're offering to them, you know, using their words, not your words, using um, their fears, highlighting the things that they need the most, not the things that you think are the most important. And then the second part of that, well, the, the other part of that Venn diagram is your personality, your specific um, brand voice, because that's, that's who they're signing up for. We need to create congruent messaging. And then the third part of that Venn diagram is word science. Cause there is persuasion psychology. There are formulas and techniques behind copywriting. It's not being clever. It's not knowing where to put all your commas. Um, it's, it's marketing and it's sales. And there's very, um, there's a lot of research and a lot of science behind how you formulate all of the research. I love that. And it, it it's so important. And, you know, when I'm working with my brand strategy clients too, it's the same thing. I have to dive so deep into their personality and their business, but also their audience and how to strategically reach them. So I, I'm more on the, the visual side with a little dash of, of copy or, you know, mm-hmm. content as well. But I love how you, I love how you do that. And I think it's so important to truly get to know the client, not only your client, but their client. It's, 
because without knowing your ideal client, without having complete clarity on that, you can't message. So I think it's really amazing that you do that. It's awesome. Yeah. There's when it comes to copy, there's no like one size fits all. I mean, my first question with anything, somebody sends me like, Oh, can you look at this really quick? Or my first question is who is this for? Because there's no, Oh, this is the rule. And we do this first. Like, who is this for? Where are they? What are they needing? How much are they aware of you? How aware are they of your product? Like what, how much time do they have to read? Where are they hanging out? Who is this for? And that's where we start. And um, I think starting with either ourselves and what we think is important or just what we know about sales really affects conversion because we have to be able to message things so that the people who need to hear it can hear it. And that takes the research. Yeah. Are you a businesswoman or entrepreneur who is transitioning into something new, into the second phase? Are you trying to figure out how to create an audience, how to grow a presence online, but you're stuck on the tech and the how-to? You have no idea how to attract new clients into your business? Don't worry. I am going to give you the exact blueprint on how to connect and grow your audience and attract more clients. During my brand marketing strategy sessions, we are going to go through the six pillars of success for your brand. The six pillars of success include online marketing, storytelling, relationship building and client connection, differentiation, personal branding, visual branding, and genuine networking. Sit with me for an hour and let's transform your brand strategy. Or do you learn better in a group environment? Join me along with five other women just like you and collaborate and mastermind together in one of my popular mini brand mastermind sessions. In two one-hour sessions, we will go through each of the six pillars of brand marketing success. There will be time to focus on your business and time to learn as we focus on the other five participants' businesses. We will run a mini mastermind group the second and third Wednesday of each month. Check the website, www.therobingraham.com for details. And I'll include the link in the show notes as well. So Brittany, you have had um, some challenges in your life, right? Um, as far as you wanted to be a mom, but it didn't appear as though that was going to be in the cards for you. And so you and your husband made a decision to adopt. Mm -hmm. And I would love for you to tell us um, about your journey and your experiencing your experience with that, because you didn't just adopt, but you have a transracial adoption and mm -hmm. you have this beautiful, darling little girl who, like you said earlier, is full of energy and is trying to find ways to hurt herself every day. Mm -hmm. um, a typical two-year-old. Oh, yeah. um, but I would love for you to tell because this, your journey and your experience with adoption as well, because I have so many friends and I was so blessed. Like I had no problems having children and I have watched so many of my friends go through infertility and those challenges and the strain that it causes on relationships and the, the stress and the angst and the emotional turmoil that it lends to. 
So I would love for you to share that part of your journey because it's, it's a journey that I think as you move through life with your daughter, with Nora, you are going to have to use all of these skills that you have already talked about today with, you know, your acting and being able to, to communicate and tell a story and, you know, on both sides, when you're, you're going to bat for her in an environment where maybe she's being criticized or judged or, you know, and teaching her all of that as well. So I'm seeing this link to what you do professionally in, you know, in with how you're going to parent this gorgeous little child who is so different than what you are. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we are our stories. Like, I don't think that we are our brands, you know, I think the brands are, you can have a personal brand, but it's, it's still separate from your personhood. But for me, like I am my story and I could not separate the two. Um, and just for your audience, I'm very open about, um, my experiences. I've done a lot of therapy, a lot of processing, still have a lot to do, but I can talk about it from a really healthy place. And so I want to say two things like one, if uh, miscarriages and infertility or even adoption trauma is triggering to you, then maybe, you know, the first half is really beneficial and maybe, um, fast forward a little bit. And two, just for anybody who's listening, who's going through something, or maybe it was a really private person and you're like, so do I have to share the deepest parts of my life? You do not. This is, this was my journey. And this was how I felt comfortable sharing my story. And you get to have private, painful, blissful, whatever moments that do not have to be a part of your brand. So, um, I just need people to hear that. But so in 2016, we started trying to have a family and I have never wanted anything more than I've wanted to be a mom. It, it's, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I didn't care, but I always wanted to be a mom. And so my husband and I decided we were going to be married for two years before we started trying. And when that like two year mark hit, like it was Christmas, like I was ready. It was go time. And I was so excited. And so we started trying and, um, then we kept trying and we kept trying and after about, you know, four or five months, I started tracking my temperature and keeping, um, you know, all my info updated in the apps and kind of going crazy with that. And then, um, I started testing every month and, um, and it just got harder and harder. Like every, every month was just a little bit more painful. And, um, you know, doctors really won't see you until a year and it's totally normal for it to take a little while, but it just felt off. So at the year mark, I went in and, and said, Hey, we're not conceiving. And I really would like to. And so they started investigating and they found a polyp, which wasn't a big deal, but they, they did a procedure to remove that, which was very um, simple and easy. And as soon as I had that procedure, we had been trying for about 13 months at that point. Um, within six weeks, I got pregnant and we don't know if it had to do with the procedure, but I got pregnant and I tested really early at a really early positive. And I, I mean, I think that to date, that was like the happiest moment of my life. And we told not everyone, like I didn't tell social media, but we told our family and friends cause we were so excited. And, um, when I was six weeks, I started bleeding and, um, we went to the hospital and it was, I think that was, might've been the lowest just cause it was like all that, that excitement um, and like the mo the highest joy I've ever felt was like the deepest pain. 
Um, it was very confusing, but went to the hospital. Um, the doctor said, hey, this, this really sucks. I mean, he was, he was wonderful, but he just said, I think that this is just something that happens, you know, happens to one in four women. I'm so sorry you're going through this, but um, this isn't indicative of anything else. So um, to fast forward, in the seven months after that, I had two more pregnancies. Um, so the first one, I had a natural miscarriage, um, which was horrifically painful. No one prepared me for that. No one, no one told me that you have contractions, your body gives birth, that I, I thought we had to go back to the hospital. I thought I was dying. Um, I just thought, how far along were you? I was only six weeks. And so I know that it's, it's way more for people who have carried for longer. Um, my second pregnancy, I was, we went in when I was eight weeks pregnant, we saw the ultrasound, we saw heartbeat. And then when we had our appointment after we had the, um, appointment with the um, ultrasound technician, the doctor said, Hey, that heartbeat does not look good. We're not, we're not optimistic. And so at 10 weeks I had to have um, a DNC because my body did not naturally miscarry that. And then um, my third pregnancy was ectopic. And in order to take care of you with an ectopic pregnancy, they give you chemo because it, you, it has to stop the cells from replicating. So that was it. That was my final straw. I mean, it was so scary, so painful. Like I went back to the hospital multiple times just for pain management. Um, it was, that was a scary moment. And that's when I just said, you know, if like, I want to be a mom, I don't want to be pregnant anymore. Like I'm, I'm done trying. I'm done putting my body through this. I'm done being in hospitals and having procedures. And I was just scared to even get pregnant again. And so because that was our experience and because being a parent was the most important thing, not, not giving birth to a child. Adoption was a very easy decision for us. It isn't for a lot of people. And I really respect that. And I think that had that been our, um, had that been the option a year before I, we may have had to think a little harder and longer. So to make a long story, um, hopefully not too much longer, we decided that adoption was right for us and we did a lot of research. Um, I had never heard about ethical versus unethical adoption. I didn't know that in 2018 there were still ways that you could do really traumatic, really harmful, really unethical adoptions. And um, so I tried to educate myself on what that looked like and we found an agency that we really, really felt comfortable with and felt prioritized the birth mom and the birth family and their well-being and their health and um, counseled them to parent, um, counseled them towards other options if adoption wasn't the best for them and then only um, helped them place their child for adoption if it was the best thing for them. So we um, started working with this agency and uh, they said it'll be about six to 10 months to get all the paperwork in. And I said, hold my beer. And I did it in four months. And then (laughs) uh, I was, I was on a mission. I was alone on a mission. And so there are a lot of classes and education, but also like certifications and notaries and signatures and fingerprints and all that stuff, all the like really, really important stuff that you do have to go through. Um, And I, and I think that it is an important process and it's also a very expensive process. Um, And then, yeah, so we finally got what they call on the books where we were able to be shown to expectant mothers. And um, we were told that probably six to 12 months would be our wait. And three weeks later, our daughter was born and we met her the day after she was born. So 
that is our story. Ask any questions you have. I'm an open book. <laughs> I just, I love it. I love that um, you were given that time frame, but you were persistent and you weren't going to wait any longer than you absolutely had to wait if you had anything to do about it. <laughs> no, I just, for two years, it felt like I had no control over my body, my family, my health. Um, I, I actually was diagnosed with a really rare condition that um, kind of prevents me from carrying a baby um, with them, with the baby safe and myself safe. And so I just, it was the first time I could control something and I just wanted to get it right. You know, I wanted to do it right. I, I knew that I had this sense that every single decision we were making in the moment, I would have to answer to for my child when they're an adult. And so it, it wasn't, that wasn't like a burden. It was a sense of like, these are life-changing decisions and every part of this process, like I need to make sure that I'm honoring my future child and her and her birth family, not, not just us, um, that we would take care of ourselves in the way that we needed to, but that the decisions we were making were not selfish decisions at the expense of people who maybe had fewer options in life. Um, and that, that felt really empowering and it felt really good to, to be empowered for the first time in a long time. Yeah. And so I would love for you to tell us, cause you have a transracial adoption. Yes, I am very white. Um, German, Irish, white. My husband is very Scottish white and our daughter is very beautifully, beautifully black. So, um, we have, uh, a lot of or different cultures and heritages and stories in our, in our home. I love that. And so I have to tell you, I read this book, um, no one ever asked mm -hmm. and my, to give a little history, my sister works for big brothers and big sisters in St. Louis. And mm -hmm. so she is very passionate about the black community and the underprivileged underserved community in St. Mm -hmm. Louis. And this book was actually written about, um, an experience in St. Louis that, you know, and it was, so the, this, this couple mm -hmm. and Schnucks is a grocery store in St. Louis. It's a, it's okay. a big chain in the, okay. in the St. Louis and Illinois area. And so this man worked for schnooks as a manager store manager mm -hmm. and so he and his wife had adopted a, a black daughter and mm -hmm. so they moved to st louis and they had a decision to make as far as what school to put their child in and do mm -hmm. they put her in the school district that is you know renowned has great testing scores it's very affluent all of those things or do they put her in this school where ethnically she's going to be more comfortable and have mm -hmm. more people that she can relate to from a culture perspective mm -hmm. so they're they're in the throes of making this decision and she meets a woman whose children go to the more affluent school the better schools and everything and um she's kind of put back a setback a little bit because their daughter had a lot of trauma and um, some different issues and things like mm -hmm. that. And so their first encounter is, you know, basically she's the daughter throws a temper tantrum and it's over fear of being in the doctor's office and that mm -hmm. anxiety related to that. Right. Mm 
So you, you kind of, they, she paint, the author paints this picture and you can just visualize the whole entire experience where this poor woman, she's white, she has a black child who is having a complete meltdown. She doesn't know how to handle, handle her. She's not connecting with her. Mm -hmm. And then you have this other woman who is completely judging her and so on and so forth. Well, long story short, the school that they had thought that they would send their daughter to so that she would be more ethnically inclined to be happy and, and culturally mm -hmm. satisfied and things like that is going to close. And all these kids from that school have to be in interspersed with the mm -hmm. other, shall we say, rich schools. Mm -hmm. And so it's this, this basically um, political and racially charged argument over bringing these other kids in. And here's this woman with this black child and having to navigate all of this. Mm -hmm. And then it's the story of the people that you know, that she met and, and helped her be able to do her daughter's hair or, you know, to, you know, a place to take her daughter to have her hair done where mm -hmm. she can then have that culture infused into her life and different things like that. And I'm kind of rambling. It's been a while since I read the book, but it was a book that really touched my heart. And cool. I would love to have you tell your perspective on that and the ways that you've had to prepare emotionally and mentally to be able to, you know, make sure that the, the culture is there for her. And because at the, at the end of the day, race and culture really do matter. They, they matter. They matter a lot. And, um, it was choosing to check that transracial adoption box on our profile was one of the harder decisions that we made, not because we had any, um, uh, hesitancy about whether we could love a child that looked different than us, um, but whether it was best for that child and whether we could raise them well, raise a, a child and a person with a different heritage than us um, in a home that, that looked different. Um, and we talked to a lot of people about this, people that we love and respect and, and value and, um, and a lot of people of color who know us very well. And, and the general feedback was like, yes, McBeans, you can do this and, and you should do this. Um, <clears throat> I don't necessarily know if that's the answer for everyone. And, and if you're thinking like, hey, transracial adoption sounds harder and I'm not sure I'm up for that, like trust, trust that trust that because the last thing you want to do is bring a child into your home that you cannot um, serve well. And that doesn't mean that I am the best at this. It just means that we're going to do the best. But before we um, could uh, be open to a transracial adoption with our agency, we had to go through some transracial adoption classes and they were really eye-opening. And it, it's embarrassing for me to say that I was 30 years old when I realized that there's a such thing as white culture, <laughs> I have been taught growing up, not necessarily by my nuclear family, just by the messages I received that there was American and then there was black culture. And that's, that's a very racist statement that I just said, and, and you can judge me for it. And, and it's really important for me to be honest about my bias, my, my, um, my thoughts so that I can be aware of them and I can change them. But in this class, I realized I didn't realize there's white culture, white American culture and black American culture and Asian American culture. I thought like it was like we were right and everybody else's way was different. 
And so starting from there and just learning, um, really acknowledging how I grew up and what that meant for me and other people's experiences and hearing other perspectives. Um, and then understanding that the most important voices that we as adoptive parents can listen to and, and I would say have to listen to um, are the voices of adult adoptees and birth families and birth parents because it is really um, easy as an adoptive parent to either feel like or see someone as, see an adoptive parent as um, a savior, as someone doing something really good, as someone sacrificing, um, as someone saving a child. Um, and, and none of these things are true. Our children are not charity. Um, they, a lot of them could have had really beautiful lives with their birth families. and it. it just may not have been the best thing at the time for that birth family. Um, but to listen to people speaking back to the things that we thought were true, like love is enough, like being colorblind is a good thing, and hearing adult adoptees say, yeah, guess what? Growing up in a colorblind home traumatized me because I never thought that I was beautiful because I only saw people who looked different than me. And I never knew that black was good. Um, people who said, yeah, my parents loved me, but they never gave me the tools to learn what it was like to be a black American. Like, no one in this world will ever love my daughter more than I love her. And I will never love anything in this world more than I love my daughter. And I cannot give her everything that she needs to be a fully formed human and, and understand her identity, but I can provide the situations for her. I can teach her what it looks like to love others. Well, I can teach her what it looks like to be loved what it looks like to make good decisions, how to have hard conversations, how to you know make good choices. I can teach her those things, um, but I can't teach her how to be black. I can't teach her um, what it's like to be stopped by a police officer and be scared for your life or, um, or be the only one in a room who looks like her or have white women come up and touch her hair because they think it's interesting and different. Um, but I can surround her with people who understand her experience and understand what it's like to be a black woman in America and can speak that back to her. So, and in our home, we can uplift blackness and make sure that we have black art and black books and black TV shows and black music and, or, or black artists and just let her know that this is not, not just different. It is beautiful and good and powerful and rich and wonderful and and that white culture is also the same thing and these are just two different cultures and both of them are important but that her story her heritage and and, and the richness of it really really matters and so yes i can do things like learn how to do her hair and my quarantine goal is learning to cornrow and i and i have and it, they look iffy and they're getting better every day and i love doing her hair and um, I can learn to um, make sure that her skin is moisturized and not ashy and, and, you know, her hair is always healthy and moisturized and all this stuff. So I can do what I can, but um, we've chosen to live in a neighborhood that is not predominantly white um, to send her to a school that is 77% black because she's always going to be odd man out in her home. And um, that won't happen anywhere else if, if I have a say in it. Oh, I love that. It's just beautiful that you have that. And, you know, you're, you're to be commended because it's a lot of extra work for you. 
this isn't this isn't easy and i think it's beautiful that you're you're coming at it from such a deep deep place of love you know thank you for saying that 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 means that means a lot and and i hope that like my love for my daughter is is so obvious to her um you know from the beginning we were told and understood that adoption was a lot of extra work and which is why i really respect people who decide that that maybe not that's not best for them um adoption is trauma being taken from your birth mother um is trauma and um, some people experience that trauma more than others but it bruises the brain from day one and it is our job to help her with her big feelings and help her understand her identity and help answer the really hard questions just about adoption, even if it's not, um, uh, you know, transracial adoption related. And our, we have an open adoption. We have contact with her birth family. I text her birth mother all the time. We see them a couple times a year. Um, she is a wonderful, beautiful, healthy, loving person in a great place in her life. Um, she kept Nora really safe and healthy. And so in that, our story is a little bit easier. There are a lot of families who, um, maybe the child was a product of, of some assault or um, the child was born with some substances in their body and that they, our job as parents is to help them understand that part of their story. And so adoption is extra work. And um, I will say for me, it doesn't feel like a burden. So it is more work and it, it feels like an honor. And I feel like if it's an honor to raise a black woman, just period. And anything that is hard for me, I have to work out with my therapist and with my husband and not with my daughter because I never want to teach her that her life was a burden or that her job is to make me happy or that she is here to fix my infertility or that she can't have any of her big feelings about blackness or adoption or being in a white home because it makes mommy have big feelings. So I feel like my job is to do the work in in rooms that she's not in and then just be there to support any work that she needs to do. Um, so yeah, it is, it is a lot more. Um, and we'll probably spend a lot of money on therapists for all three of us. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah, we have to go visit her birth family. We get to go visit her birth family a couple times a year. And I love those trips, but they're long drives, you know, like these aren't complaints. It's, it is just extra work and it's an honor. And I think that it's okay to decide that that's not what you're best set up for, for your family, if that makes sense. No, I think what you're saying is there's a, there's a balance at the end of the day mm -hmm. um, where it, it's not a burden, it's an honor, but at the same time, it does take a lot of extra thinking and logistics and skills and willingness to work on, like you said, those, the big emotions or the big feelings that um, are going to be different for all three of you and to, to be able to, to navigate that and be willing to put the work in to make sure that everybody is healthy from a, from a mental health perspective. Um, so I, I have to say this, um, in episode 26, I, I interviewed Tanya Longino and she is just the most beautiful, kind, loving black woman 
and, and I'm not saying it because she's black. I'm saying it because she is a woman of color, but a woman of, but a woman first and foremost, who is, has just has a heart of gold and she does a lot of work with, um, diversity and inclusion. And so in mm-hmm. episode 26, we talked a lot about that, about this because she's in the HR industry mm-hmm. and, um, you know, she, she coaches people on the fact that that bias is, is there, we are all born with that bias Mm -hmm. and we can't do anything about it until we identify where that bias is coming from. So, you know, as you said, you grew up with all these factors and these influences that you didn't even really know were there. Mm -hmm. And so it, for listeners who are interested in learning more about this, listen to episode 26, because Tanya dives into this a little deeper, but it's, it's really important for anyone who is involved with raising children, um, teaching children, and then going into, you know, even the corporate environment, even mm-hmm. entrepreneurship and, and making those hired hiring decisions and not looking at the skin color, but looking at the person as an individual, not looking at the name, but looking at the person as, as a whole, as an entirety, um, yeah, throughout well, that hiring the, process, like truly listening and understanding and believing other people's experiences. Um, you know, I, I don't have a, a son. I have a daughter, but um, I have a dear friend who has two um, black sons and, and she does have a black daughter as well. But, you know, when she says to me, like, I have to have the hoodie conversation with my boys. And if you had a white child, we, we had this conversation before, um, before we tried to grow our family, but she said like, you're never going to have to have that conversation with your kids. Well, jokes on her because um, we do have to have harder conversations. But, but anyway, this, this conversation happened before um, we met our daughter and, and everything in me wanted to say, this was years ago, wanted to say like, no, it's not that bad. Or, and then I just stopped and I just heard her and I believed her. And Believing other people's experiences when they were not our own is really, really, really hard. And it's not something that our culture, especially white culture, teaches us to do. We think that if I didn't experience it or if I haven't seen it, it must not be true. Mm-hmm. And that's why I say like listening to adult adoptees' voices who have been raised in really harmful homes or really beautiful homes and listening to birth families who maybe did not have a very um, respectful experience and listening to black people and listening to people who grew up in poverty and listening to people who grew up um, with a lot of wealth and money and just believing their experience, not pushing back on it, trusting that it's true, even if it wasn't yours. And then really evaluating what, what that means. Because if my experience isn't the only one that matters, how does that shape the environments that I create? Yeah. Yeah. It's so important. And it, and it goes, it goes back to really doing that self work, self work, you know, looking in deep within yourself to make those decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I'm, I'm grateful for, um, my husband who is in, um, mental health. He is a minister for a recovery community and I'm grateful for his family and just the other people in our lives who value, who value that work, because I don't think it's something I would have have come by naturally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would say we're, we probably all could say that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, Brittany, we're going to have to wrap up soon. (laughs) 
<laughs> I could talk so to much. you all day long. Um, and I'm so thrilled that we were able to tie in your career and your entrepreneurship journey along with your personal journey, because I think they, they both tell such great stories and a, and a real testament to, to you and your personality as well. Um, so I'm going to ask you if you would please share with the listeners where they can find you and connect with you and learn more about yeah, you. Um, the, yeah, the best way to connect with me where I share the most um, humor and stories and tips about marketing and copywriting and um, whatever's going on in my life is my email list. Um, so if, um, yeah, that's really the best place. So I can either give you um, a link or you guys can just reach out on Instagram and tell me you want to be on it. But that's where I kind of connect with my people the most. And then other than that, I hang out on Instagram. So um, yeah, if you want to check, if you want to get on my email list, just go to BrittanyMcBean.com and um, you will be able to there. And if you want to find me on Instagram and voice message in the DMs back and forth while my toddler is running around naked and peeing on the carpets, then I am at Brittany L. McBean on Instagram. So that's where I like to hang out and where we can chat. I love that. And do you have a book recommendation? Yeah, I do. Um, actually if it's okay, um, I've tons of business books that I love, but I'm sure that you're going to get so many recommendations on your podcast. Um, if I'm assuming people listening to this might be a little more curious or open to adoption. So I'd love to recommend two books that were recommended to us. Absolutely. Um, there is no shortage of, um, books about adoption that make it really happy. There's no shortage of books about, um, being a white adoptive parent. So those are really, really easy to find. And if you need those stories just to understand how beautiful this life is, please go find them. But also if you, um, maybe you're struggling a little bit with the idea of adoption trauma, or you want to know more about it and how you can be helpful to your child, the two books that were recommended to us that I really love, um, one is called The Primal Wound, Understanding the Adopted Child, and that is by a woman named Nancy Verrier, V-E-R-R-I-E-R. And then the other one is a book called The Connected Child. I'm going to look at the author of that because it's escaping my brain really quick. Um, but that is a book about how to really... Um, love and raise and discipline. Um, it's discipline's the wrong word, but how to, how to raise children who come from traumatic backgrounds. So maybe that's adoption, maybe it's foster care, maybe it's um, just some, some different needs, but it's called the connective child, connected child, bringing hope and healing to your adoptive family um, by Karen Purvis. And if you are adopting internationally or an older child who has spent more time um, in, in care outside of a family, that is going to be a really, really important book. So, um, I'm not an expert, but those people are. So those are really great places to start reading about how to, um, adopt responsibly. Oh, that's awesome. Brittany, thank you so much for being here. This was a real pleasure and very eye opening. I learned a lot myself. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks for letting me talk and share our family story. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll share with your audience. Like I am an open book about adoption and about our story and about infertility and miscarriages. And, and if you want to talk or you just need to cuss and vent, and you're so tired of people telling you everything happens for a reason because you just lost your seventh baby. Like you can talk to me. Um, I do not share our family has chosen not to share our daughter's story and her birth family story because we just feel like it's really important to give her ownership of that. 
Um, so I'm happy to answer stories about our experience with open adoption. I love open adoption. I'm an advocate for it. Um, and no questions off the table, but I also will let you know if something is a little bit more private, but um, I'm pretty much an open book when it comes to our experience and our story. So please reach out if you just need to um, talk or ask questions or um, vent or break dishes or just whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Brittany. Uh, thank you, Robin. And that's a wrap, friends. Thank you so much for listening today. I am grateful to have you here with me. If you enjoyed this episode and found the information helpful, will you please take a moment to subscribe and leave a rating and review? That would mean the world to me. It will also help others find the podcast. I really look forward to getting to know my listeners. Will you please connect with me on Instagram? You can find me at the Robin Graham. You can also find me on Facebook and LinkedIn as Robin Graham. And I invite you to join my private Facebook group, the Brand Marketing Insider. Please spread the word about the second phase podcast. Until next time, remember to smile.